Is it on, Pam? All right, good morning. How are you all? Good. Hey, I, this, this week was so awesome for me personally. It was one of those weeks in which you may have heard when teachers say they get a lot more out of preparing, studying, teaching than the students do. For me, this week was this way. Uh, fantastic. I'm bristling with excitement this morning. And I hope that something, a measure, will be conveyed to you from Zeb and I this morning through the spirit that will help you feel like I do. <laughs> okay, um, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to Gethsemane today uh, under the tutelage and uh, visuals of Miss Nancy, who was, uh, can I call you our mom for the trip? <laughs> no, seriously. I den leader. I mean, seriously, on that trip to Israel, wow. And I actually went over to their house one time. I had to go drop something off, and Ed took, takes me into this and very ceremoniously, like serious. And he goes, and this is control center. <laughs> and, and this is Nancy's room. The whole Israel trip is laid out perfect. Everything was perfect. Was it, was there, was it not perfect, those of you who were there? Yes. So anyways, we're going to Gethsemane. She had a great time there. She's got some slides. Then you can see the red marking on the board. What does this remind you of? What, what do you see? Oh, the red, the red. Nice big red F. Uh, nice big red F. What does this remind you of? Has this ever happened to you? It actually reminds me of a bow and arrow. A bow and arrow. Okay, well, it's supposed to be an F. I'm sorry. <laughs> Russian calligraphy. So sorry. Well, F. It reminds me of one time when I was teaching at Malone, I heard these two students arguing in the back of the class, and one of them said, well, at least I didn't flunk it as bad as you did. <laughs> so um, F stands for failure. Probably, maybe there might be some of you who have never gotten a paper in your life that had a big red F on it. I certainly have. Today is about failure, failure, failure. Peter's failure, why did he fail? Uh, does anybody read Lord of the Rings? The first time I read it, when I, when I got to the end, spoiler alert, Frodo fails. No! Heroes don't fail. Frodo failed. Now we get to the heart of the Christian story. The leader the rock, the stone, the iron man, he fails. So we're going to learn today about failure and how God overcomes failure in our lives, and I hope you'll learn a lot. So Nancy, take us away, please, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Thank you, Pam. I tried to take it off of the slideshow so I could say a few words on each picture. So on February 19th, we um, made the journey from the Sea of Galilee up to Jerusalem. And in the afternoon after lunch, the bus dropped us off at the top of the Mount of Olives. And this is the view of the old city from the top of the Mount of Olives, um, this facing west. And walking down was quite a steep walk, very, very, one of the steepest uh, walks that I've ever made. And you can see the city in the distance. Um, at the entrance to the um, Garden of Gethsemane is this sign. It's got a verse from the Bible, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So that's a quote from our Savior. And here is one image of what the garden looks like today. Peace is spelled out in the rocks there. And this is another view of the garden as it is today. We were quite fortunate that there were some gardeners working in there trimming the olive trees, which maybe a thousand years old, maybe two thousand years old. Uh, it's hard to date olive trees. The, 
the wood is so hard, I think that it compresses the rings somehow and they can't read the rings. But fortunately, there was a um, pile of branches that the gardeners had built up and we all grabbed a little snippet from the olive trees there. So I'll pass this around. This is my snippet. If you like, this is a real olive branch from the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane is a Hebrew word evolved from the Aramaic word for olive press. And apparently uh, olive press is actually referenced in one of the uh, verses in the Bible. There's a uh, church there, the Church of All Nations, which was built in 1924 by a lot of different countries cooperating together, and this is a painting inside. This is Jesus leaning against the rock, being comforted by the angel up above. And here's a, a picture of what the, the church looks like from the outside. Another name for it is the Basilica of the Agony. And while we were there, we had the privilege to have a short lecture from Beth Pansino on the medical condition called hematohydrosis, uh, which is sweating blood. And um, it's a very rare occurrence, but she in her um, medical career has seen it at least one time. So it was uh, fascinating to talk about the stresses on the human body that can occur that will uh, cause that to happen. So this is what the church looks like from um, maybe a <coughs> picture from the street. And the garden is off to the, uh, in the picture, it's off to the left. Allergies. My husband captured this picture. This is standing in front of oh. the church looking towards the old city. And I'm sure he was admiring that fence. Um, what kind of gets me, I mean, being in the Garden of Gethsemane was really a special thing. Am I making that noise? Oh. Um, is these holy sites are right there in the middle of modern civilization. So here we are standing in front of this church, the Garden of Gethsemane is over here, and they're cars in the street right there in front of it. It's just kind of, um, uh, I can't think of what the word is, inconsistent. And uh, this is my last picture of the church from a distance. We were in the bus going on to go um, worship at the wall and uh, the garden is off to the left in the picture, to the left of the church in the picture. There's a Russian Orthodox cathedral up on the hill, but we, were, we started out at the top of that hill and walked down. So this is what the Garden of Gethsemane looks like today. Uh, I think maybe with some of this visualization, you can picture a little bit more about what it must have been like 2,000 years ago. I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, Dan's going to turn the lights on, and I would like you to turn now to John 13, please. And I'm going to set the background. You can see up here. The background to everything we're going to learn today took place in what we sometimes call the Last Supper, or the Passover meal. There's questions about whether it was truly the total Passover meal or not. That doesn't concern us today. The last meal, the last supper that the disciples had, John 13, verse 2, you know the setting. They're just all gathered, and John starts the passage off, 13, 1 and 2, with some very interesting information. Now, who's reading this morning? Where's that mic? And we need somebody to read 1 and 2. Thank you so much. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the, this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. 
The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to to betray Jesus. Oh, no, fine. Okay, what's going on in Jesus' mind? He tells us, gives a little window in Jesus' mind. It's the end. Uh, What does he know? I'm going back to the Father. I've come from the Father. This is the climax for Jesus. He's going to fulfill his his, uh, mission, why he's here. Now, something else is going on. That's a supernatural phenomenon. Jesus is sitting at a little dinner party, and his head is exploding with supernatural reality. He's thinking, I've come from God. I'm going back to God. I've got to do my exodus. I'm going to die. The whole thing is going on inside of his mind, and simultaneously, what else is going on inside of somebody else's mind? Judas. And what does John tell us? That the devil had, now her text said prompted. Anybody have anything different? Put into the heart. The devil, the diabolos, has already put the notion, the idea, into the heart of Judas to do what? To betray Jesus. Now, if he's put it into his heart at that point, we must then infer what? That this has been going on for some time, right? This is a process. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't just happen that night. In fact, if you want to really drill into this, and we don't have time today, but you could go back to John 6 at the end of the, the big picnic when Jesus fed all those people, and they said at the end, uh, everybody left because they were freaked out about what Jesus was teaching. Everybody's leaving. The master says uh, to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where are we going to go now? You, you know, we're, everything's built on you. Where are we going to go? And the master says to him in the most, uh, ooh, have I not chosen all of you and one of you is a diabolos? Wow, that kind of just went everybody, over everybody's head, you know, because the master always said these things. And, you know, the, you have to, we have to acknowledge that they're walking around with this person and they don't get all these things. So they're like, oh, that's just another one of Jesus' little laconic, um, sardonic, uh, little sarcastic sayings, you know, like maybe he's bitter because everybody's running away from him. So he's like, hey, didn't I choose you guys? One of you is... But the master knew then what? that what was going on, that it had been, Judas was already being subjected to a process of what in the Bible is called what? Temptation. It's a solicitation to do evil. It's already going on. So that by the time we get to the Last Supper, it has already been, boom, installed inside of his heart that he's going to do this thing, which means that he's already made the plans. And the master being in contact with God knows this. Wow. So, um, now, go to John 13, 27. The meal goes on. They're chatting. They're talking. The master throws out at a certain point, I got, I'm sorry to tell you guys, somebody's going to betray me, so one of you guys is going to betray me. And Peter, sitting next to John, where's John sitting, by the way? Most, one of the most beautiful things in all the Bible He's leaning on the chest of Jesus. He's got his head on Jesus' chest. Okay? And so Peter says, who is it? John leans his head back. Who is it? The master says, the one I give the sob to. So the master picks up a piece of pita bread, which all of you ate when you were there, dips it in the, um, the, the salt, gives it to Judas, he takes it. What's the text say? When that sop entered into him, what happened? At that point, it moved from simply being a mental construct, an idea, a temptation, a solicitation to do evil, to an embracing of the person of Satan, and Satan was now going to live inside of him and give him the, the mental, the, the power, the energy to pull off this deed, to actually go ahead and betray Jesus. Wow. That's going on in the background of this Last Supper. Now, go over to Luke 22 and find out what's going on inside of Peter. And we're going to get to... Uh, 
verse uh, 31 and 32, and I'd like to have another reader. And just notice how the master talks here to our beloved subject, our person that we're studying. Who's reading? Luke 22, 31. This is Madeline. Madeline, hey, hey. Okay. Um, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, you to, has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And let's just to play with this for a second. What have we been learning about this person that we're studying? What's his name? Rocky. But what, this time the master says what to him? He calls him, he calls him Simon. And why does he say Simon, Simon? What's in there? See, this is the problem with the written text, right? You can't see the master's eyes. You can't see his tone. You can't hear the tone. How do you think he said it? <laughs> Simon. Simon, Simon. Simon, Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you. That's what the text says in the Greek. He's demanded you. He's put in a formal request for your, I can't say it, uh, and for your, for your heart, for your soul, for your being, for your existential ontology. He wants to do what with you? He uses an agricultural metaphor. You ever see sifting wheat? It's fun. We used to do it out on the farm. Throw it in those little trays and... And you get that kernel. Sifting, a violent, agitating process. Satan is going to take you through a violent, agitational process inside of your soul and you're going to get sifted and stripped down to what end? To get you to the core of for what end? Well, what? Not good end? But there's a reason. There's, this isn't just a game. What does Satan he wants to ruin his faith. He wants to trash him. You're the leader of this little messianic movement. You're going to stand up to me, the God of this world. I will. Oh, uh, you guys don't listen to this kind of music. Rolling Stones, Sympathy for the Devil, Mick Jagger. At the end of the song, he's singing for Satan. He says, you better show me some respect or I will lay your soul to waste. Anybody remember that song? You guys are so old. <laughs> yes! I will lay your soul to waste. <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, that this is not a game. He wants, to, he wants to lay Peter's soul to waste. And having done that, he could then destroy the Messianic movement. He could then do what? Satan. Trash the whole movement and win. So the master says, this is what you're going through. Now, isn't this interesting? Watch this. Peter is going through what? Simultaneously, the same process as who? As Judas. And we can presume that the rest of the disciples are too. So here in this little uh, beautiful Flickering lamps, pita bread, hummus, uh, good last supper, Jesus teaching, teaching, all behind. There's this roaring spiritual warfare going on with Satan and demons impacting the minds of the disciples, working on them, trying to get them to fall away from Jesus. This is supernatural sifting pressure. And Peter's going to find out what? Just like we all find out. Now Zev will tell you why. Why did he fail? And I will show you some others too. So Zev, come on up here and wax on for a while. (laughs) 
Well, I don't know about the tour needing a mother, but I think with John along, they probably needed a chaperone. <laughs> okay. Why do we fail? Okay. Um, what I want to look at is some of the same episode, but in Matthew. This is where we're going to go first, and we're not going to spend as much time, obviously, as the passage would sustain, but we're in Matthew 26, and I'd like someone to read Matthew 26, 31 to 35. What version do you want? 31. What version do you have? <laughs> I have the message. You'll take it? I can flip it. Okay. Gethsemane. Then Jesus told them, before the night's over, you're going to fall to pieces because of what happens to me. There's a scripture that says, I'll strike the shepherd, helter-skelter the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I, your shepherd, will go ahead of you, leading the way to the Galilee. Peter broke in. Even if everyone else falls to pieces on account of you, I won't. Don't be so sure, Jesus said. This very night, before the rooster crows up the dawn, you will deny me three times. Peter protested. Even if I had to die with you, I would never deny you. All the others said the same thing. Okay. Actually, that wasn't the version I wanted. <laughs> because it leaves out some key words. Okay, first of all, it's not so much fall to pieces as fall away. Fall away. Falling to pieces is something that happens to my personality when I'm under severe stress. Falling away is something that happens to my faith when I run from it. So there's a whole lot of difference there. But what I really wanted to double down on here is just one word in what Peter says. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never, never fall away. Now, I do know we have some J.R.R. Tolkien fans in here. You know you're a real J.R.R. Tolkien fan when you don't refer to the Lord of the Rings but Loder, <laughs> and you can count the number of times you've reread it, and every now and then you say, hmm, I think it's time to reread Loder again. But uh, one of my favorite characters, perhaps for physiologically obvious reason, were the Ents. Do you remember the Ents? You love the Ents? Well, yes, the, 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 the shepherds of the trees. Would you like to explain something about Entish language? Me? Yeah. <laughs> what was Entish language like? Deep and booming, but also what? What? Well, actually. Long, convoluted, takes forever to say something. Yeah. Yes. It could take them all day just to say hello. Because in Entish, a word has to tell the entire story of the thing it is attached to. And since most Ents live for hundreds of years, Mary and Pippin were wondering how long it would take to call the roll at a gathering of Ents. Now, there's one key moment that I really do love from that story. When the newly crowned king of the West, Aragorn, is departing, you know, you know the, the fellowship is now breaking up as people return to their homes, and they come to, Orth, uh, to uh, um, is it Orthanc? Yeah, the tower where Saruman had lived and Aragorn is talking to Fangorn, who is the head of the Ents, probably the oldest living thing on Earth. 
And he says, we will never forget what you have done for us. And do you remember what Fangorn says? Never is too long a word even for an ent. Never is too long a word even for an ent. Now why, why do I say this? Because in a very real sense, that was a very faithful word that Peter uttered. And in a sense, the word never probably can't be said by a human being at all, especially if we're talking about failure, okay? So unfortunately, never is too long a word. Now, John's already alluded to a passage that tells you, I think, why we fail. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus had probably one of my favorite conversations in all of Scripture with a person with whom I identify very deeply, and that's Nicodemus. And what does he tell him that must happen if Nicodemus is to really see and enter the kingdom of God? We must be born again. Now the word again in Greek, anothen, means either born again or from above. And the double entendre, I think, is intentional there. And he also characterizes two different kinds of birth. What does he call those two different kinds of birth? Birth from what? And birth from what? Birth from the Spirit, and he contrasts that with what? The flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when Peter said, though they all fall away, I will never fall away, which of the two sides do you think he was talking from? The flesh. And that's why we fail. Because we rely on our own resources. We rely on our own resources. Okay, take a look now. And also, there's one other thing that we need to rely on that we have a tendency not to do, and it has a great deal to do. Now I'm going to one of my favorite letters, Romans. And I realize we're detouring from Peter to Paul, but I think when it comes to the psychology of spiritual failure, nobody has it more closely than Paul. Okay? I'm looking at Romans 9.30 through 10.4. I need to move fairly quickly here. Thank you. What, <clears throat> what then are we to say, Gentiles who do not strive for righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if they were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay. And then he continues, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ 
is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So why did Israel fail to find righteousness through the law? What? They tried to do it. They thought it was based on works, not faith. Okay, they tried to do it as if it were based on their own performance. You know, and there is a certain element of that in Judaism. There's an interesting blessing that is said when a child is bar or bat mitzvahed. It is said by their parents who say before God, blessed are you, O God, who has relieved me of the responsibility for this child. (laughs) In other words, from here on out, if the child succeeds or fails, it's up to them because they are now a bar or bat mitzvah, that is, a son or daughter of commandment. And so it is up to them to obey or not to obey. And they will be held accountable for whether they obey or do not obey. Now, believe you me, I tried it. I tried it in both Orthodox Judaism, where you have 613 commandments. I tried it in Reform Judaism, where I think sometimes the definition of commandment may be, thank you for not sinning. But, you know, be that as it may, it doesn't make any difference how many commandments you feel bound by. As long as you think that it is up to you and that you can make this work by simple act of obedience of your own will, what's the result? Failure. 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 Okay. And Paul discusses a little earlier in chapter 7 exactly why that happens. I'm linking at 7, 14 to 25. At this point, I will read because i got to keep moving here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what Paul is basically saying here is that there is an inner warfare going on within each of us between the flesh and the spirit. And if we want to win, we can't rely on the flesh. We can't rely on our own power, our own energies. We have to rely on the indwelling spirit of God because apart from that, we will fail consistently. Okay? And that was really my experience more than anything else. Now, about watchfulness, this is another thing why we fail, is that we fail to be alert, fail to stay awake. And here I'm again back in Matthew, in the garden. Okay. And that's Matthew 26, 
36 to 41. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Now, where did we last see him taking Peter, James, and John apart by themselves in this class? What did we? Transfiguration. So now they're about to see something entirely different. Now they're about to see, in a sense, the flip side of the transfiguration. Okay. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Watch, watch, watch. So what was he asking him to do? Was he asking him to pray, really? He was just asking him to stay awake. That's all he was really asking him. Just stay awake. Watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. Now he's adding pray to watch. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. When we fail to stay awake, that is to pay attention, when we fail to pray constantly, what happens? We fall into temptation. Why? Because what is, in in the meantime, even if we're sort of asleep at the switch, who is not asleep at the switch? The devil is not asleep at the switch. Satan is not asleep at the switch. And what is his favorite stalking ground to catch us up? Where does he tempt us in or through? What? What does Jesus say? For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay? That's where Satan is watching to strike, in our flesh. Okay? Now, I'd just like to tie this up with the need for watchfulness, really, I think, came to me this week in thinking about a psalm that has a particular place in Jewish, uh, Jewish piety. It's Psalm 130. And frequently, when I was in Talmudic academies and yeshivot in Israel, and when someone was seriously ill and needed serious prayer, this was the psalm that we all chanted. Okay? Psalm 130. And it is so wonderful. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness in order that you may be feared. That's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? In order that God may be feared, may be held in awe, may be held in reverence, God forgives. Because otherwise, what would our attitude would be? Oh my. No, I'm in trouble here. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Now, that's what I really wanted to drill down on, is that passage. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now, what are we seeing when something is repeated in Hebrew? It's important. It's emphasis. Okay. 
Now, what was the job of watchmen? First of all, they're watchmen waiting for the morning. So what shift are they on? They're on the overnight shift. This is graveyard. And what are they supposed to do? What are they eagerly awaiting? Well, but they're watching, they're waiting for what? For morning. Shift's over. But what do they have to do? They have to watch for it. Because what happens if they don't watch for it? Well, they're going to fall asleep. What happens when the watch falls asleep? The energy, the enemy comes. Now, that's, you know, this is so. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. In other words, what is the psalmist really saying to us? We have to watch because we are living in a dangerous universe. We are living in a dangerous spiritual universe. And what pulls all of this together, both the need to rely on the Spirit and the need to watch and pray, is that famous passage from Ephesians. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, we're taking part in a cosmic battle. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, whose righteousness, by the way, are we putting on? Christ's righteousness, not our own. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Not the shield of works. There's no such thing as a shield of works. Okay? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making application for all the saints, etc. Keep alert, watch, and pray with what? In the Spirit. And don't forget that in some sense, the key passage is right at the beginning. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I got news for you. Any contest between Zev Rosenberg and the devil, I know what the outcome is going to be. I'm going to lose. That is if I'm relying on my own strength. But if I'm relying on the strength of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living within me, and I put on those gifts that they have given me, the whole armor, then I'll be able to stand. Not by my own strength. And that was Peter's failure. He still thought he had to do it and could do it himself. Okay. John, I don't know if I've left you enough time, but take it on. It's all good and uh, we could go on all day. thought before you leave today, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I hope you're seeing that what we do sometimes is we take the stories from Peter's life 
and then we jump over 30 years later into his writings. Have you been noticing that? And we find the places in his writings where he speaks to the events that he went through 30 years prior so that we can see what he learned from this. So <clears throat> I just, this is the last thing. We are not gonna get to the very end, the denial. We'll do that next week and we'll do that in conjunction with uh, Jesus restoring Peter. So I'm just gonna, for a few minutes, talk about this, with, in a sense, what Zeb was just talking about, but in, in a very distinct way. I don't have to tell you the whole story. You're over in 1 Peter 2, and uh, when I get to the right uh, time, I'm gonna ask one of you to read it. Uh, and it would be uh, 1 Peter 2, um, verse 21 through 25. 21 through 25, 1 Peter 2. Now, do you remember at the Last Supper when the master said to them, look, remember when I sent you guys out on the first mission trip, all those trips, and I told you, don't even take a bag, don't take a purse, don't take anything, no money, nothing, just go? And they said, yeah. And he said, did you lack anything? And they said, well, no, everybody took care of us. He said, well, I'm telling you right now, things have changed. Now, get your bag, get your sandals, and maybe you better even get a sword. Now, people have used that text to justify just war, the invasion of Iraq, everything under the history of the world, because the master said in an off moment, you guys, I'm sending you, you better get your knapsack, your clothes, your shoes, and you better get us. you might even want a sword. So Peter, as usual, is sitting there, and he goes, well, here's two of them. And the master says, okay, that's enough. Now, what is that all about? Now, do you think Peter actually walked around with one of these? And now, nine. Who's running the country? The Romans. They don't let Jewish boys walk around in the hood with swords open. It's like open carry, like an AK-47, right? We're going to get there. Everybody's going to walk around with an AK-47 and a German shepherd in America. That's how we're going to have peace. <laughs> open carry, open shepherds. Now, what's Peter really talking about? What do you do for a living? What do fishermen need? What if it's a big fish? Big knife. So cut this in half. That's what they had. He said, yeah, hey, we got a couple of knives here. The master said, okay, that's enough. I don't know. Did he really expect Peter to use it? Well, when they got in that garden, what happened? You know the story. They come to arrest Jesus. Peter says, you're not, you're not messing with my, my guru. You're not touching my rabbi. So he pulls the sword out. And <laughs> and the guy's name was Malchus. We actually know his name. Caught him right at the ear. Perfect Mike Tyson shot. <laughs> Whacked his ear off. Was he aiming for his ear? Was he doing a fish fillet? I'll show this guy how I can fillet a. He was trying to kill him. He was going to kill that guy. Oh! <clears throat> My dad in heaven is rolling over. <laughs> he liked bad puns. So, what does the master do? First of all, he heals the guy's ear. I mean, can you imagine the swirling confusion? Soldiers punching, shoving, running, screaming. The master's composed enough to do what? Bends down, picks that guy's ear up, and heals him. That's Jesus. Then what does he say to Peter? Put this away. What are you talking about? Don't you, don't you understand? If I wanted to right this moment, I could call legions of angels down here, supernatural entities that would waste these people. This is God's will for me to do this. You can't win this war With that, you're entering into a new dimension now. Spiritual war. What's the new sword? The words of the living God that point to the living Christ. And here's Peter. He's got to learn this right in the moment, right on the spot. He's every man. He stands in for us. How many of you think would have, you would have done better? Most of you wouldn't even got the knife out of the pocket, <laughs> let alone strike. We'd all been running, screaming, yelling. Maybe some of us would have fought. 
Now, go to 1 Peter 2 and watch what Peter does 30 years later. What does he tell the Christians who in some ways are going through very similar experiences in their own human lives? Actually, I got to start at verse 20. And I'm reading out of the King James, so I'll modify it a little bit. What glory is it if when you are beaten up, buffeted, yelled at for your own faults, and you take it patiently, right? If you get yelled at when you screwed up, what's the right attitude in the business world? Just take it. Thank you. I'll do better. But if you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You see what's going on with these Christians? They're living out the Christian world under Roman rule, and what's happening? Things aren't going too well. They're running into some difficulties. So then he says in verse 21, so this was what you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. What does he do? He goes back to the Garden of Gethsemane and he looks at Jesus. What did the master do when the forces of hell and the Roman Empire and the Jewish Uh, betrayal was all arrayed against him. What what does Jesus do? He he healed the sky and then instead of retaliating, what does he do? And the only way way he could do it at that moment was because a couple of hours earlier, what had he done in the garden? Prayed and broken through to God. A couple hours earlier, what was Peter doing? And I would, I'll say, what was Johnny doing when he was sleeping next to Peter? What were we doing? Had a couple glasses of wine. Looks like a nice evening under the spring stars and under Gethsemane. Let's get some Z's, man. This stuff's exhausting hanging around with this dude. They go to sleep. The master's over there agonizing in prayer to the place where literally blood is pouring out of his face because he's fighting for his soul because he's got to get himself to the place where he can say what? Not my will but yours be done because he won that battle right there when he got arrested and they started pounding on him and beating him. He could do what again? I entrust my case to God. God will bring justice out of this horrible thing. God will. God will win. So, Peter learns what? Trust in your flesh. What's going to happen? All the best intentions in the world, of course he's a good guy. What happened? Trusted in himself, he lost. Jesus shows us. You know, trust in yourself. You've got to entrust yourself to God. God will give you the supernatural power to do anything, to resist anything, to get through anything that God calls you to get through. And you'll notice in the text then when he goes down the next verse. For in his own body, what does he say Jesus did? He bore our sins in his own body. Where? On the tree. The master knew knew he was destined for this. This is what God's will was for him. And that's what God's called us to. Jack, you were going to say? Oh, okay. Well, actually, we finished on time, though. We didn't get all the way finished, but we'll finish up next week. We'll do the denial, then we'll do the restoration. Does anybody want to ask any one quick question? I mean, during the whole thing? Eating, drinking, hanging out. Um, you mean after? Oh, yes, I, I'm sure. That's the power of darkness. That's it. Zev wrote that one text. I'm telling you, we could do one of those. Who was that guy that talked, fell out of the window when Paul was sleeping or speaking that long time, that one time? Uh, what was the guy's name that fell out of the window and died? And Paul raised him from the dead. Some poor... Poor schmuck was up in a window. Paul talked so long, the guy fell asleep in the window and fell out. Do you remember this? No. He died. That's never happened to me while I've been preaching. No one's ever <laughs> died, and I had to resurrect them. But we could go on and on and on about this because there's so much. Remember what that text that Zev said, I read? Strike the shepherd, and what will happen? The sheep will scatter. The sheep will scatter. Satan came down on all of them. 
We're just giving these little pops, windows, what's going on in Judas' head, what's going on in uh, Peter's head. At the garden? Oh, no. Oh, in fact, one of the coolest little cute stories in the whole Gospel of Mark. Go home and read it today. There's this one little strange story about this person, and it says, so they were all there, and this uh, Roman soldier, or a Jewish soldier, I don't know which one, reached out and grabbed this young guy, and he had like a little white tunic on. Do you remember this story? He had his little pajamas, his little linen pajamas on. He's running around in the garden. And the guy grabs his jammies and he's like, whoa! And he hops out of them and runs away buck naked. Do you remember this? It's just one little tiny story. You know who that was? John Mark. He put it in there to say, hey, my parents lived in Jerusalem and I was there that night and I saw it. And when that guy touched my little jammies, strike the shepherd. So yeah, Peter in his usual first you know, strike mode, whacks the guy's ear off, the ear falls, Jesus bends, heals, chaos, running, screaming, yelling. The master turns to Peter and says, what are you doing? Put it down. And it, the whole place just went crazy, and they all ran away. Then Peter and John and the rest of them, you know, from afar, followed. Yes, sir. Made to do it? <laughs> Only if you're a stone-cold, double predestinarian Presbyterian. <laughs> hey, who's Russian here, by the way? Anybody had any little Russian in them at all? I do. And anybody else? Nothing? No Balkans? Nothing? I need a guy. All right, he's an Italian. He'll do. Come here. <laughs> now, listen. You've you got to remember, Jesus is a human, same time simultaneously deity, Right? In his humanity, filled with God, Jesus didn't look at Judas and say, ah, the one who will fulfill scripture, the pawn, the goofball that's going to play the, the, what's the Jewish, the nebish of all time, the schmuck of all time. He didn't look at Judas that way. In fact, when he comes to the garden, Judas comes up to him. <laughs> Go ahead, do it. It won't kill you. What? He kisses him. Jesus kissed Judas. What? With disgust? My God, he's holding on to him. You're going you're gonna to turn me over. You're going to turn me over. You're going to turn me over and kill me? Judas, friend, you betray me with a kiss. He's a human being. He's, this isn't a pawn. He's fighting for Judas' soul. Just like he's fighting for Peter's soul. <laughs> yeah, so you got to do it right. <laughs> Thank you. Now, listen to this now. Just think about this as you leave. So he's, he's kissing Judas. He's fighting for Judas. And then he had also said to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So the faith that God put in Peter's heart, not Peter's faith, but the faith that God put in Peter's heart, that's what Jesus prayed would not fail, even though he knew Peter was going to fail. And he knew Judas was going to fail, and he prayed for Judas too, except, and I'm telling you, this is where the bitter truth of scripture cuts right into your soul. Except he prayed for Judas, but what? Judas didn't really believe. He didn't really have faith. He didn't accept the faith that God gave to him, like Peter did. So they're both men, and Jesus loves both of them, and he's fighting with all of his heart to save both of them. But one doesn't have faith. And the one that does have faith, what happens to him? He goes into the gutter, he weeps bitterly, but then what happens? He comes back. And that's how 
God saves those who have real faith. You'll fail. My flesh and my heart will fail. But those who have had faith installed in them by God, that will never fail. Okay, one last question, and then we've got to go. So even if Jesus is praying for you, it's still up to you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> There's the sword. What have you I been saying? You know, you know why uh, he said, you need a chaperone when you hang around with me. I, I, I'm over... Wonderful. Thank you for asking that. I promise we will drill into it exactly when we start next week. That's the, that's the essence in a nutshell. You know, this whole mystery. Yeah. Who is it up to in the end? And okay. we have to really ponder this and not seek cheap theological answers each, each way. It's a real war, so we'll deal with it next week, I promise. Okay. I would just like to say one thing, you know, and I've said this in other classes that I've taught, the one thing a Christian can never say to God is, okay, God, I'll take it from here. <laughs> okay, God bless you. You guys got to go. Uh, we'll see you next week, and um, thank you for coming.